is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. To Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Jennifer Frey, Harper Schmidt Fellow and Collegiate Assistant Professor of the Humanities at the University of Chicago. And she is here to discuss the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. Jennifer Frey, welcome. Thank you for having me. I think the obvious question to begin with here is who was Thomas Aquinas? Sure. I think it's important to keep distinct our contemporary understanding of Aquinas insofar as we have one and who Aquinas was in his time. We tend to think of Aquinas as the quintessential Catholic theologian, the man whose work was set alongside the Bible at the Council of Trent, that sort of most important Reformation council, which really defined Catholic doctrine until Vatican II. And that was not the way that his own contemporaries understood him. I mean, it's very important to keep in mind that some of Aquinas was condemned by the Archbishop of Paris. Aquinas taught at the University of Paris. And so Aquinas would be very surprised (laughs) to learn of his own legacy. Aquinas was a medieval philosopher. He was born in the middle of the 13th century in what is now Italy. He was born into a noble family. His family did not want him to be a philosopher, a theologian. They wanted him to be a lawyer, something that would pertain to his class status. But Aquinas decides he wants to become a Dominican, a member of the Order of Preachers. This was not a popular decision, and his mother actually locked him in the attic for quite some time until he came to his senses, but he didn't. And so eventually his family allows him to go to Paris to study with another great medieval philosopher, Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great. And Aquinas goes on to become, you know, Albert's greatest student. He was not an unimportant theologian for his time. I mean, there were great debates between him and Bonaventure. And, you know, the the Dominicans had a sort of very different conception of man and especially his relation to his passions than the Franciscans did. So there was a general kind of Dominican-Franciscan debate, which Aquinas was a part of. But he wasn't, you know the kind of renowned name that he is now. He kind of lived a quiet university life as a Dominican. That's really interesting. So we we tend to think of Aquinas as much more part of the establishment than he was in his own time. I mean, I guess one question that I would imagine a lot of people might have is, well, what's the relevance of someone like Aquinas for us now? So, I mean, it's interesting to know that he was not as well accepted in his own time. But nevertheless, he's medieval. As you've said, he's a Catholic theologian. You know, if we're people in the 21st century, not all of us are Catholics, 
Why is Aquinas someone that we should still be paying attention to? Why should we still be excited about his work? Right, that's a good question. And I think basically anyone working on Aquinas needs to have a response. Luckily, I think the response is pretty easy. So we should read Aquinas, I think, for three basic reasons. The first being that his method of philosophy is exemplary. So if you just look at the Quaestio format in which he was writing, it seems to me to be the perfect way to do philosophy. So you have a question in general, say it's a question on the simplicity of God, and then you divide that question into articles. Say there are eight articles that identify various aspects of this question. And Aquinas approaches each article first by stating objections. So he starts off by making a case for the view opposite of the one that he's actually going to give. And he'll usually lay out about four or five of these, and then he'll say, you know, on the contrary, (laughs) my view, (laughs) which is usually just the denial of it. And then he says, you know, I respond thus, and he gives his argument. And then he goes through every objection systematically and shows why it isn't a genuine objection to his view. And so it's this format in which you are forced to think through what your opponents are likely to say. And for Aquinas, and this is also, I think, the benefit of the format for Aquinas, these are typically very historically informed objections. So, you know, the philosopher would say, or Augustine says here, you know, he kind of shows that he knows the traditional ways of thinking about this. And he says, no, but this is the right way to think about it. Let me respond to, you know, the traditional views put forward. And so. And just to clarify, when Aquinas says the philosopher, he has one philosopher (laughs) in particular in mind, right? Sorry, yes. The philosopher is Aristotle. So anyway, I'm an analytic philosopher. And so... I think philosophy is at its best when it strives for clarity and sort of rigor of argument. And so, you know, this would be in contrast to philosophers like Nietzsche or even Plato, where, you know, it's more about persuasion of a different kind. I just think that rational argument and clarity are virtues of good philosophy. And in Aquinas, I think it really doesn't get more clear and more rigorous. And so I really just think that his method is exemplary and that reading the Summa, reading the disputed questions on any topic, you know, the disputed questions on virtue, for instance, it's just a model for doing philosophy. And I think it's important to be exposed to that model, whether you're an analytic philosopher or not. So that's one reason to read Aquinas. Another reason is that he is such a systematic thinker. So there's not a single position that Aquinas holds that cannot be seen to fit into this system. And this is important, I think, um, because every aspect of his system supports another aspect of it. And so he would really feel that contemporary philosophy, which is so highly specialized and compartmentalized, I think he would find that to be a really tragic situation. I think he would not understand this idea that, well, I do ethics, maybe I read a little bit of metaphysics, but basically I have nothing to say about it. You know, his position would be, well, your ethics is going to be kind of incoherent if you haven't thought through more basic principles. And in this way, I think he's a lot like Aristotle, 
But unlike Aristotle, because he had this scholastic format in which he was working and he was operating within the university, well, the medieval university, he was really able to systematize his thought in a way that Aristotle wasn't, or at least that Aristotle handed down to us isn't. And so I think in that way also, he's a good example of, you know, what it means to be an excellent philosopher, to think things through systematically and to see how one aspect of thought is connected to another. So that's a second reason. The third is that I think he really exemplifies a philosophical virtue. I mean, it's really a joy to read him. If you share sort of analytic training, I think you can sort of pick up Aquinas and even if you don't know the traditions to which he's responding, even if you don't really know his system, I mean, for instance, you know, when I picked up Aquinas for the first time, it's not like when you pick up Hegel for the first time and you're just like, what's going on? I mean, you have to have, I mean, somebody has to help you through that because in some sense it's impenetrable. It's not like that with Aquinas. Um, and so there's a kind of easy, maybe easy is too strong, but there, he's accessible in a way. You can pick up his system at any point and get into it. And so I think it's very important to read him for those reasons in general. It's important. That's really interesting because you know, some of those virtues of Aquinas that you've listed, so this rigor and clarity in thinking, this idea of fairness to the person you're arguing against, these are some of the virtues that we would like to associate with ourselves in the modern era and perhaps would not associate with a Catholic theologian writing in the Middle Ages. We would tend to think of that person as maybe being closed-minded or not exemplifying these virtues. So in a way, actually reading Aquinas might be surprising to us. Um, yeah, I think that in general, there's a kind of prejudice against medieval philosophy and like all prejudice, it stems from ignorance. Medieval philosophy is the philosophy that's most likely not taught in any department. If it's taught, it's considered like kind of extracurricular, it's just something fancy that, you know, they threw in there because they could. And it's not considered, you know, part of basic curriculum. And I think this is a mistake a deep mistake, and, you know, the loss of Aquinas is just part of that. But the clarity of argument is not unique to Aquinas. I think you will find it throughout medieval philosophy. It's just that in Aquinas, it's especially spectacular. I mean, he's just so good. But yeah, I think it would be surprising to most people. Great. Okay, so one aspect of Aquinas' work that you've particularly focused on in your writing is his work on or what we might refer to as ethics. I mean, you've already said you can't really separate these aspects of his thought, but to the extent that we can focus on one, you've been interested in what he's had to say about ethics. Now, Aquinas is sometimes referred to as a, a teleological thinker. And I guess teleology has something to do with the idea of purpose, things having a purpose. But maybe you could explain that a little bit more. What, what would it mean to say that Aquinas was a teleological thinker? Sure, I think that we can and should say he was a teleological thinker because so many of his arguments rely on teleological explanation. I think that people tend to hear teleological explanation in terms of, you know, final causes or final causality. And it is true that 
Aquinas accepts this idea of the so-called four causes that he gets from Aristotle. So you have this idea of efficient cause, material cause, final cause, and formal cause. Final cause being the telos, the end, that cause from which we get our word teleology. And he's inheriting this idea from Aristotle, but most objections against so-called final causality or final causes are really objections against later scholastic ideas about what this means where, you know, claims like final causes are weird future events. It's like a backward causation, the future affecting the present somehow. And this is not the view. I think that teleological explanation it's not so much about causality and the way that we think about it, one thing causing something else to happen. It's more like a form of explanation. And what's most essential to that form of explanation, well, there are two things, really. The first is that in order to grasp this explanation at work in the world, you have to have an idea of the whole in order to identify any part which could be attributed to the whole. So, for instance, in order to know that this like bit of green stuff on a rock is some Spanish moss as opposed to like some leftover gum or like a hunk of slime from a kid's party, you'd have to know something about what Spanish moss is what sort of descriptions you can apply to it, where you'd find it. You have to have some idea of what it looks like, if it has parts or whatever. And so you have to have some idea of the form of moss in order to know that this is a bit of Spanish moss as opposed to anything else. But you also have to know in order to say, you know, what's going on with it at any point, whether things are going well or badly for it, you'd have to know what it is for things to go well or badly for that living thing. Now, Spanish moss turns out to be a bad example in this bit because it doesn't really do much. But if you think about like a sunflower, for instance, well, you know, if it has like a weak stem and it's kind of bent over, then we can say, you know, it's not doing well. Maybe we can even say that it's dying. But that's only because we know that a sunflower ought to have a really thick, robust stem and grow to be of six feet of height or whatever it is. And so there's this idea that we have to know the form in order to identify any particular kind of it and in order to know whether or not it's doing well or badly here and now. And this idea of whether it's doing well or badly, this is the identification of goodness and end that is so crucial to teleological explanation. So the idea is that if you know the end towards which this thing is striving, namely being the kind of thing that it is, then you know the standard by which you can assess whether or not in doing whatever it's doing now, it's flourishing, or if it's dying, if it's not doing it well, you have a measure, you have a standard. And so teleological explanation is explanation that presupposes this knowledge of form. To take it back to the sunflower example, this uh, idea that Aquinas is drawing from Aristotle is that part of what it is to 
understand what a sunflower is is to understand that there is a way a sunflower is supposed to be it's not supposed to be drooped over and brown it's supposed to be tall and green and looking lively and so forth Mm -hmm. so understanding what a sunflower is is being able to differentiate between ah things are going well for the sunflower versus things are going badly for the sunflower and that's the idea of of natural teleology or the idea that things in nature have a purpose as it were Right. Well, I would shy away from the purpose talk just because when we talk about purposes, I think we're usually talking about an agent who has a goal and is striving to achieve it. And it is true that a sunflower has a goal, namely to be a fully grown sunflower. And I mean, even in a sunflower seed, the goal is in some sense present. I mean, Aquinas would say, you know... um, in potentiality. But, you know, the sunflower itself has no sense of its own purpose. It has no idea about it, and it has no desire for it. Nevertheless, Aquinas will speak of it having a kind of natural appetite, this kind of natural tendency to its end. And what he means by that is is really simple. He just means that unless something interferes with it, this seed will become this other thing, namely a fully grown mature sunflower. It pertains to a quay seed that it will become that so long as, you know, things don't interfere, so long as it doesn't get picked up by a child and thrown on a bit of concrete or, you know, the universe doesn't implode or whatever, or so long as it has adequate sunlight and the things that a sunflower needs. So it's just that idea of tendency... Aquinas would sometimes say potency, you know, to become what it is. So this is not a way of thinking about things that is just obviously incompatible with modern science. Like to talk about natural teleology, to talk about a sunflower having a way it ought to be, isn't to deny all that modern science teaches us about sunflowers and other things. It's just to say, if you leave the sunflower in the right kind of soil and the right kind of environment and you don't interfere with it, there's going to be a way it's going to go. It's going to look like this every time. That's right. And I think it's an innocent view. I actually think that it's only when you're operating with a certain theory that you want to deny it. I mean, this is a form of explanation that we rely on and the impetus to reduce it to more primitive forms of causation comes out of having a theory. That's the only reason, I think, for uh, pressing against it. So I think that it's absolutely compatible with contemporary science. Okay, so it seems like in the case of a sunflower, it's pretty straightforward to differentiate between a sunflower that things are going well for and a sunflower that things are going badly for. Is it the same with people? I mean, when we... um, Is part of what it is to uh, know what people are, to be able to make the distinction between somebody that things are going well for and somebody that things are going badly for? Yes. I mean, I think Aquinas, what makes Aquinas sound especially peculiar to contemporary philosophers is that he does think in a very general way that... Just as we can say that things are going well or poorly for a sunflower here and now based on the nature of a sunflower, we can say for a human being that things are going well or badly based on the nature of a human being. Aquinas thinks that just like 
plants and animals, man has a certain kind of life that pertains to him, where that means there are certain ends that it pertains to man to achieve. Aquinas says these ends are things like friendship, knowledge, living in society with other men. And by men, I just mean anthropos. You know, Aquinas, unlike Aristotle, does include women in all of this. So this is an improvement. So, you know, he's thinking that the same basic form of explanation is in play. But, of course, he thinks it's much more complicated in human beings because we can do bad things in a way that a plant or an animal cannot. And that is namely this way. We can know what it would be good for us to do and not do it. We can act maliciously. We can also act in a way that is, you know, what we call a credit or weak-willed, which is to say the case where, you know, um, I know that I ought not to eat the cake, but I sort of am so overcome with desire that I do it anyway. I act against my better judgment. And Aquinas also thinks that unlike the case of plants and animals, human beings have a choice. And they have a choice because they are rational. And so for a human being, there is a distance between these general ends that pertain to our nature and the particular way in which we will attain them. And human beings have knowledge of these ends, but we also have to order them. I mean, Aquinas says that the wise man is the man who knows how to order things well. So the theoretically wise man knows the order of the universe, and the practically wise man knows knowledge's place as opposed to whatever other goods may or may not be subordinate. I mean, he thinks that ultimately our, our highest good is contemplation of the divine. But he definitely thinks it's more complicated because we're rational and we're free, but he thinks that at bottom our ends are natural, and we are free because we have a choice about how to attain them in the here and now. Okay, great. That's really helpful. So one question that it might be worth talking about before we close is how this kind of general view that Aquinas has about human beings might help us as philosophers. What, what kind of problems are there that Aquinas could help us to see more clearly or perhaps provide us with a better kind of answer to? I think that what Aquinas is sort of most helpful in making a salient for contemporary moral theorists and philosophers of action is the compatibility of natural teleology and practical teleology. You know, most contemporary moral theorists think that reason is in some way either opposed to or indifferent to nature. That reason is kind of this autonomous realm, sort of anything that would pertain to you or me, qua human being, is irrelevant from the standpoint of, you know, pure reason or, you know, that rational principles, what defines them qua rational is that they are universal for all rational agents. And so 
As a result, in moral theory and in philosophy of action, we work with an extremely abstract notion of agency, you know, rational agency as such. And then we try to figure out, well, you know, what would be good or bad for a rational agent as such? And it seems to me that curious things are said as a result of this kind of inquiry. And I think that what Aquinas shows us, or at least that if we reflect upon Aquinas's view, um, we would have to come up for an answer for ourselves. You know, this question of, well, you know, this very abstract notion of agency you have doesn't seem robust enough to give you an ideal of goodness or badness. And this is actually a point that um, Peter Geach, who was much influenced by Aquinas, made in a very famous article called Good and Evil that he wrote in the 50s. And he says, look, you know, when, and here he's really talking about the interrelation between goodness and being, sort of like being a certain thing and an ideal or standard. And he says, look, you know, we can't make this identification for just anything. So he talks about, you know, state of affairs, event. He says that these aren't substantive enough concepts. They're too general. There has to be a certain level of uh, specificity in order for us to generate this identification between goodness and end. And I think Aquinas would say, you know, this abstract idea of agency in general, it's not specific enough. And that if you look at the way this form of explanation manifests itself all throughout the world, <laughs> isn't it funny that we make this incredible leap from, you know, sunflowers and gray wolves <laughs> and uh, sago palms to rational agent as such? Um, and I think that he would really question that move. And he wants to show how there can be a kind of continuity between this kind of natural teleology and a rational power in a specific kind of creature, you know. So I think he shows us how we can speak about natural teleology and practical teleology without being confused. So the reason that it becomes so difficult for people to think of natural teleology and practical teleology as compatible is because we tend to associate with the power of reason, the power to step back from and evaluate whatever, you know, whatever is put in front of reason's tribunal. We can kind of deploy this critical apparatus and pose the question, well, given that, but is it good or bad? And it's supposed to somehow be up to reason itself to determine that. I mean, this is kind of the idea of the autonomy of reason. It's not beholden to nature. And in fact, you know, it might be opposed to nature. I mean, suppose nature tells me, you know, that I ought to live with other men. You know, this is something that Aquinas says pertains to our happiness. I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe reason is telling you that you can go it alone or whatever. I mean, nothing about nature could tell you the difference is really the point. And so Aquinas is kind of showing us that actually, if we think about the nature of practical reasoning in particular, it doesn't make sense to think of it in abstraction from the substantive good of a specific kind of creature in which practical reason operates. So, for instance, his definition of the first principles of practical reason are 
the natural ends that pertain to that form of life. So he, like Aristotle says, that in practical reasoning, the principles are the ends, right? So he thinks that his understanding of practical reasoning is that practical reasoning operates on an object of the will. So it presupposes that there's something in general you want, and the goal of practical reasoning is to determine specifically how you're going to get it. Given the various ways you could go about getting it, you know, how are you going to do it here and now? And the excellent practical reasoner, you know, the man with prudence, um, is the one who can make that transition from general to particular well who can do it in accordance with the good, where the good is the good of your kind in these particular circumstances here and now. And so Aquinas would be very confused about this idea, as I think Aristotle would. It's less clear in Aristotle, but in Aquinas it's especially clear that, you know, practical reason has to be reasoning about something. And unlike theoretical reasoning, it isn't reasoning about what is and the way things hang together. It's reasoning about basically how to get what you want. But what you want isn't like willy-nilly whatever passion you have. And it's not like what you rationally chose in accordance with the moral law. It's what pertains to your nature to want. But here we're talking about very general ends. You know, I mean, friendship. Well, how do I get that? That's a hard question. That's something that Aquinas thinks it takes practical wisdom um, to really know how to attain your ends altogether, you know, within one life. And so he does not see this opposition. In fact, he sees natural ends as necessary for right practical reasoning. So in a way, I mean, this takes us back to a point we made earlier that for Aquinas, it just doesn't make sense to separate out these different areas of study. Like we could say there's ethics over here, and then there's the study of living beings and biology over here. What we have actually is this great big continuum of nature, and human beings are just part of that. That's We're going right. to put human beings back in nature. That's right. And the best evidence for this kind of systematicity is that you know, the argument for this view doesn't come in one section of the Summa. It doesn't come out in the question on prudence. It doesn't come out in the questions on action and will. It comes out kind of piecemeal. It spans the treatise on happiness. It spans the treatise on habits. It spans the treatise on law. And it spans the treatise on man. And ultimately, it goes back to the treatise on God, though I haven't, I haven't talked about that. But it's a system, and every part is a further, there are kind of further and further levels of this. And so, yeah, I mean, he definitely thinks if you haven't thought through the question of being, and you haven't thought through the question of nature, you're not going to understand, you know, it's all of one piece. Jennifer Frey, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was fun. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at Lucian. That's L-U-C-I-A-N dot uchicago dot E-D-U slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. 